Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We have been talking a lot about stocks as the S&P and NASDAQ enter correction territory. There is a question, though, about the bond market, in particular, the riskier credit markets. I'm really glad to say that we've got Christine Todd, head of U.S. fixed income, with us from Amundi Pioneer, which oversees $90 billion. Christine, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with high-yield bonds because we're seeing unprecedented outflows from the biggest ETFs that invest in these uh, in these securities. And we're also seeing the shares of those ETFs decline significantly today, HYG, which is the biggest of it, uh, sinking the most since 2016. How concerned are you, without getting into the esoterics of ETFs versus the underlying market, how concerned are you about some sort of liquidity spiral that's going to really push prices down a lot more from here in bonds? We more see it as an opportunity than a concern. Um, When you're an active manager and you see that there is um, fear-based selling, um, not fundamentally based, um, then you really are seeing correlations separate and that the opportunity for bond picking increases. So we can take advantage of forced selling, causing dislocation and valuations, and improve the um, credit profile and the yield profile of the portfolios as this is happening. Um, so, no, yeah, go, go, go ahead, ahead, Christine. Well, I was going to say that um, you're, you're really seeing a process of price discovery and that when you look at indices and um, marked prices, uh, it's, it's really more a gauge than an uh, execution level. So that, too, is something that you can take thorough advantage of and uh, that the ETFs being for sellers are at the mercy of. So, Christine, so if someone was brave enough to dip their toe back into the bond market here, where are some sectors that you think they should look for initially? Well, the obvious place to look is in the energy sector. Um, That is taking the biggest hit from the uh, fears around the coronavirus. And the more stable subsectors with energy, um, like pipelines, uh, are, are less leveraged to the price of the commodity. And we think there are really strong opportunities there. What we're doing is really topping up our best ideas rather than adding new names to the portfolio. So sticking with our convictions and doubling down on where we see value. So are you doubling down on pipelines? We are reaching our targets, which is um, an equal to overweight in energy via exposure to pipelines. And when did you start doing that? 
So we've been active in uh, managing around the subsectors of energy, and we've been accelerating that process in the last couple of days, but not frenetically. I mean, the key here is to be patient. And we don't think that we've seen floor and prices in the wides and yields. Um, you know, we've only dropped, you know, in high yields in the in terms of the index, you know, call it 80 to 90 basis points since the um, corona scare really took hold. And we're down, you know, over 120 basis points since the beginning of 2019. So this is not, um, you know, a wide buy recommendation. This is being very selective in the names that you pick and um, sticking with your convictions from a bottom-up fundamental analysis. So, Christine, I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal here. Two-year Treasury, 1.05%, uh, very near the all-time low. Do we need to be on a zero interest rate watch for the two-year, do you think? Well, the Fed has been very clear about wanting to stay very far away from zero-bound interest rates. And uh, the, at some point, though the Fed is resisting, at some point the Fed is going to want to see um, longer-term rates rise more than shorter-term rates, um, but to see optimism uh, in the markets. So you might see the front end of the curve come down with the Fed succumbing to pressure um, from the coronavirus, mainly from tighter financial conditions, um, not so much from the administration, um, but in reaction to, um, you know, the, the consumer retrenching. And probably what you'd see is a 50 basis point move um, characterized as an emergency cut that could be walked back when the crisis subsides. So, the answer to that is we could see lower two-year rates, but um, the market wouldn't come down to zero because there would be optimism around the uh, stimulative uh, leaning of the Fed and the stability of economic growth. Christine, just real quick here, uh, 30 seconds. I'm looking right now at Fed funds rates pricing in almost uh, three and a half rate cuts by the end of January. Do you think that that's reasonable? Do you expect the Fed to cut that, that much? We do not. Um, we are very confident that the Fed is influenced by the economic fundamentals and that the pressure from, as I said, the yield curve, the administration, um, can be avoided, um, though uh, a consumer retrenchment and the reversal of some of the very strong economic numbers that we've seen would cause the Fed to act. And as mentioned, uh, an emergency move of 50 basis points could be easily walked back, but we don't see a strategic plotting towards easier policy because of the fear in the market of the coronavirus. It would be based on the fundamentals, the consumer, right. the housing market, the job market, et cetera. Christine Todd, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your, uh, your thoughts on the fixed income market. Christine is the head of U.S. fixed income for Amundi Pioneer, of about $90 billion under management based in Boston. There's sort of an expectation that at a certain point, there will be some sort of stimulus, whether it be monetary, as is currently being priced into the Fed funds futures, or whether it will be fiscal. And this certainly comes as the Democratic debates heat up as we head into Super Tuesday, leading to a question, what is the cost 
of some of these fiscal stimulus plans, in particular those put out by Bernie Sanders. And does it matter? Ben Holland took a look at that. He's a political economy editor for Bloomberg News, joining us from our 1901 studios in Washington, D.C. Ben, you wrote that perhaps it doesn't even matter whether Bernie Sanders' numbers actually add up because borrowing rates are just so low. Can you explain? Yeah, I think what's striking here is that there is this debate going on in the Democratic Party. You have Bernie Sanders with all these very big, you know, unprecedented in recent history spending plans. He says he's going to pay for them all by raising taxes on various things. And his opponents say, ah, well, but your numbers don't add up. And Bernie Sanders says, yes, they do. And the opponents say, no, they don't. And what's odd is that while all this is going on, the the cost of government borrowing in the United States has plunged to levels that have never been seen before. So you might think it would be a good time for both Bernie Sanders and the other Democrats to say, well, if these plans don't in fact add up, does it matter? It might be a good thing. Maybe the economy could use some more fiscal stimulus. So it's interesting, Ben. It raises a question. Don't deficits matter? Doesn't the national debt matter anymore? I think there's I don't think that many people would make the case that deficits don't matter. But I think more and more economists would make the case that there is no reason why we should worry about the ones that the United States is running right now, because it's running deficits of around 5% of gross domestic product. That's pretty big. Um, it's nothing like you had in 2010 after the crisis. But for a, you know, for a decade into an expansion, it's a pretty big deficit. It's not causing inflation. It's not causing flight from bond markets. It's not causing yields to go up. It's not crowding out any investment. So a lot of economists have concluded, well, it's not something we need to worry about right now. Ben, what's the alternative concern here that the more debt that an economy takes on, the more that you head into a deflationary spiral where it's sort of a weight hanging over the economy and it doesn't act in a stimulative manner? Well, I think that is a concern. But I think what's happened, if you, if you look at Japan, which has kind of led the way in a lot of this stuff and a lot of other developed economies like the United States and Europe are kind of getting there, what you had was a, was a big build-up in private debt. And when that crashed, which was about 10 years before it crashed in the United States, so in the late 1990s, what the government was doing was really stepping in with deficit spending to fill that big hole in demand that had been left by the bursting of a private credit bubble. Well, that's pretty much what happened in the United States 10 years later. And the United States, ever since 2008, the government has been stepping in, just like the Japanese government did, to fill the gap in demand by its own deficit spending. So, Ben, this sounds to me a lot like modern monetary theory or MMT. Can you explain what MMT is and is it becoming more accepted by more economists? If you listen to what the most economists say about MMT, you'd probably conclude that it isn't becoming more accepted. But then if you listen to the way that economists talk about things like deficits and government debt, I think you'd conclude that it is becoming more accepted. So it's kind of creeping into the debate. And the essential argument of MMT is that when governments run deficits, the thing that they have to worry about is inflation. They don't have to worry about going bankrupt. They might do if they're using another, you know, if they're borrowing in another currency. But if you're the United States, if you're Japan, the United Kingdom, you don't have to worry about going bankrupt. You have to worry about well, will I spend too much money and create inflation? That's clearly not a problem right now. 
Fascinating. Ben Holland, thank you so much for joining us. Ben Holland, political economy editor for Bloomberg News, joining us from 99.1 Studios in Washington, D.C. And I will say, Paul, the conversation comes at a really salient point, especially as Hong Kong starts to do helicopter money, essentially, giving each family a certain quotient of just cash to go out and spend. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Anand Srinivasan just walked into the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios in his hoodie, his Bloomberg Intelligence hoodie, and he said, the world's melting down and you want me to talk about ink cartridges. And we said, yes, that is exactly (laughs) what we want to talk about, because even though we do have the coronavirus fears spreading and concerns about what that means, there is actual business getting done and discussion of it. And we want to bring in Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Anand Srinivasan, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst. And Austin, you wrote a story for Business Week that Xerox and HP are in a $35 billion fight over ink cartridges, which is comical considering the fact that the concept of paper and ink seems to be going the way of the cart and horse. What was sort of the gist of the piece? Well, I, I think, first of all, uh, we should just clarify that the printer market is still massive. Uh, in fact, it's estimated that uh, between the uh, consumer and office market, there's still about 3.2 trillion pieces of paper printed every year. So that takes a lot of ink. That takes a lot of printer sales. Um, so this is really a story about two aging innovation giants of the 20th century. They own the innovation market of Silicon Valley. They, they arguably invented the sort of garage startup. Uh, and yet they've seen in the last decade or so this disruption in the digital market and them just hanging on to their old world uh, products like printers and ink, which really is what accounts for a large portion of their profits. Uh, So this is a story about Xerox trying to take over a much larger aging giant uh, to see whether they can create some sort of printer supergiant as the market continues to consolidate. So Anand, give us a sense here. I'm looking at Xerox. It's a much smaller company than HP. How are they going to finance this thing? Uh, Debt. Uh, okay. quite, quite quite simply put. And that's cheaper been one today the, than it was back in November when they proposed ab- the deal. Absolutely. And and this has become a point of contention to um to, for for HP in its refusal, in its continuing refusal of uh of the uh, Xerox uh, MA um approach is that it'll be too debt heavy. Um and our take is that in fact HP looked at Xerox um, last year, and they spurned that deal uh, potentially because there weren't enough cost synergies and they couldn't make the deal work. 
Look, in the grand scheme of things, right? So um, Austin's story is on point in that um, supplies is what matters. Um, if you look at the supplies business, it is roughly about 21% of overall HP sales. It's a very, very, all of supply printing, including the consumer business and the corporate business and supplies has a 16% operating margin, which they want to take to 17. Supplies alone probably is well into the 20s. Um, and they've tried to sort of use this uh, four box model in the previous CEO's tenure to try and push more printers um, and have it be sticky over a long term with an office such that it can drag the supplies business. And so they'll give you the printer at a discount. In the consumer business, that hasn't necessarily worked because the consumers are buying the cheap printers and then going to the fake printing supplies from off brands and using that. So you, you're not sort of benefiting from that. I love the quote, Austin, in your story. The industry may not be sexy, but it's not going anywhere. There is a question, though, and I do want to bring it forward since, Anand, you did come in here and the, and the coronavirus is the headline right now. What about supply chains? What about uh, some other aspects of these companies? Both of them shares down more than 3% on a day like today. Anand, I'd love you to uh, take a crack at that. I mean, do you have a sense of how much they're affected here? Absolutely. Look, I mean, the entire um, tech ecosystem supply chain goes through China, and this is the downside of having become concentrated in that part of the world over the last 20 years, given logistics ease, cost preference, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, uh, and, and you're going to be impacted. One Q is done, right? So you're going to take numbers down for one Q. The question is, what does 2Q look like, both from a demand perspective as well as from a uh, supply perspective? And can you get product out the door to meet that demand? And that's going to be the telling sign. If you don't have enough product and if demand is weak, that matchup of those two will determine how you shape up for the full year. Um, and we have some sensitivity here from uh, from our work. If you and supplies are a big portion of that too. What happens is if you take supplies down, you take margins down with it pretty hard. I mean, because because PCs are a low to mid single digit operating margin business. It ain't sexy by any stretch, right? So the printer the printer business and the supplies business is what's carrying HP. You ding that business, coronavirus dings that, and you print even less then EPS is disproportionately hurt. Austin, is this deal going to get done? Well, I think that's uh, the, the big question about the uh, announcement that they had earlier this week attached to their earnings is that uh, they're pushing back on this deal by announcing, uh, you know, this big boost of $15 billion uh, in buybacks, uh, huge cost savings, as Anand just mentioned, that they're looking for. Uh, and so if you see any disruption in that supply chain or slowdown in PC or printer sales, even more than what they've seen in 2019, that's going to put a lot of pressure on HP to sort of explore this deal more. In Enrique Lores, who came in as CEO in November, uh, basically said, you know what, we're sort of going, we have a winning strategy. He dissed Xerox a bunch on the earnings call. Uh, but at the same time, he kept saying, we're open to this idea. But a lot of the, if you talk to analysts, they, they, they do feel like, you know, th there may be more of a likelihood that HP ends up buying Xerox than the other way around. Dissed on the call. <laughs> dissed on the call. Uh, you, he was very explicit about it. Technical he says they, they don't have good technology. They're they're small uh, by comparison. And uh, yeah, no. Uh, and we spoke to him after the call, and he was uh, uh, he said he was pumped up about how well it went. 
Austin Boom. Carr, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Austin Carr, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, and Anand Srinivasan, our senior uh, uh, technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, both joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, last night, President Trump held a press conference along with members of the CDC to talk about the coronavirus and the state of U.S. preparedness for the virus. Let's take a listen. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. We're ready to adapt and we're ready to do whatever we have to. This one is different, much different. This is a flu. This is like a flu. I think the stock market will recover. Uh, the economy is very strong. We are uh, totally ready, willing and able. That was President Trump last evening at the White House uh, talking about the coronavirus and uh, the preparedness of the United States for that. Let's dig a little bit deeper onto that state of preparedness uh, by the U.S. Uh, government and economy. Vivian Ho, she's a James A. Baker III Institute Chair in Health Economics and Director Center for Health and Biosciences at Rice University uh, in Houston, Texas. Vivian, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of kind of where you think the U.S. is in terms of preparedness for dealing with a potential wider uh, outbreak of the coronavirus in the U.S. I think the U.S. is actually in a fair amount of trouble in terms of what's going to happen with the coronavirus because the speech yesterday basically told citizens that there wasn't much to worry about, but we see the spread of the disease all over the world. There are several countries with cases now, which means it's only a matter of time before the disease reaches the U.S. Unless the president wants to make a decision that we cut off all trade in goods and services and people traveling, which we could we could do that and we could then shut down the economy because of how much of our economy depends on trade and, and um, transfer of um, goods and services and people across borders. And so um, – we have local governments and schools and and other um, places not prepared for what will happen when this disease actually reaches this country. So what, Vivian, should they be doing to prepare? Well, I, I thought that um, when Anthony uh, Fauci spoke yesterday afterwards, um, you know, he's he and others are saying um, try not to be too alarmed. This is this is something like a flu. We're going to have cases of um, diseases similar, to, say, to pneumonia, and those are of high risk to seniors and those with compromised immune systems. Um, and we need to be directing more resources towards the CDC. Um, apparently, we don't have enough test kits that are adequate for local um, uh, local governments and state governments to be able to test um, patients. So that's going to be a problem. We're probably going to have cases where parts of the country are going to try and, and um, quarantine people at home, close schools temporarily, um, close work offices temporarily. But my guess is um, because this is so hard to control the spread of the disease, eventually officials are going to throw their hands up and say, uh, sorry, we can't handle this um, and, and try and go about your normal everyday business or otherwise the economy really tanks for a significant period of time. So, Vivian, you know, over the last several days, it appears that there's kind of a disconnect between the CDC uh, and the Trump administration, different, you know, kind of framing the risk profile of this disease. How problematic is that for, you know, local authorities to maybe make the decisions they need to make? 
I think it's extremely problematic because there needs to be some guidance and expertise at the top saying what resources um, are these governments going to receive and, and what should they be planning for? And you need to have that coming from the federal level unless there are um, state experts who are going to give this guidance. Now, now I think Alex Azar is a terrific Secretary of Health and Human Services, but it troubles me that, that, that Vice President Pence was put in charge of dealing with this disease. You know, when America goes to war or goes to battle, we put a general in charge who has military experience. Um, If we're as a country going to try and fight this disease, we should be having a doctor or an epidemiologist who understands the spread of infectious diseases calling the shots. So let's walk through the iterations of what you expect is most likely, because it is highly unlikely that the United States at this point uh, would or could completely shut off its borders and all trade. What do you expect to happen based on the contagiousness of the disease that we are familiar with at this point, as well as the preparatory measures that have been put in place? I, I think it's I think it's highly unpredictable at this point, simply because there are going to be different authorities who are going to make different decisions. And, and, and we don't know who is going to be giving them counseling, but you could have everything from, um, uh, you know, certain governors saying, okay, we're going to declare a holiday and, and everyone stay home for a week to try and um, get control of what happens to other states saying, well, we need to go about our business and let's go ahead and do this. And um, but let's try and funnel as much resources as we can towards um, towards public clinics and towards hospitals to deal with the expected rise in the number of cases. I mean, there's a fair amount of fluctuation that goes on every year in the healthcare system already because of the flu. And so um, um, so our healthcare experts, you know, people running our hospitals do know how to deal with this. There's always a, a lot of discretion in terms of do we admit ca- um, patients with the pneumonia and do we not? So, so in in a sense, they can deal with this. I think it's just the problem is there's so much anxiety and panic on top of it. You know, if you get the flu, you're kind of like I've had this. I've uh, you know I've had this before, and they're saying the mortality rate is somewhat similar to the flu, but it's just new. So, Vivian, how do you think this will play out in terms of the spread in the U.S.? Are you are the good folks at Rice thinking this is going to happen and this is going to be bad? What's kind of your base case there? Oh, I think everyone is dis- is in is in disagreement right now. I personally think it's only a matter of time, and I have no idea whether it's going to happen within the next two or three months, or whether it's going to happen in six months or in a year. It, 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 it's just too early to say because the scientists don't know how the disease is spreading. They don't understand why it's showing up, for example, in California with a person who supposedly has no contact with anybody from China. Vivian Ho, thank you so much for being with us. Vivian Ho is the director of the Center for Health and Biosciences at Rice University, also the James A. Baker Institute Chair in Health Economics. Really interesting to hear uh, what the potential concerns are in terms of how to prepare for something like this. It does seem, though, uh, Paul, and not being a doctor uh, or anything else, but looking at the medical supplies industry, there seems to be a little bit more optimism that six months, a year run rate actually is helpful 
in developing the right medications uh, and and vaccines. And we are seeing some of those companies we're seeing their shares surge as they prepare for that. Yeah, exactly right. And as uh, Vivian Ho was suggesting, uh, like we've heard from a lot of people, it's just too early to, to kind of figure out how this will play out uh, in the U.S. But uh, again, I think it would be foolish probably, you know, what we're hearing from a lot of people would be, would be foolish to think that it won't come to the U.S. and it won't be an issue. So it, now it seems to be a question of how prepared is the U.S. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.